poverty and their misery is the even deeper-rooted problem of their chronic idolatry. They have forgotten the Lord who saved them out of Egypt and they have ignored his word to them and instead, instead they have reverted to the worship of the gods of the nations around them. That is the condition of Israel. And God raises up a judge for them who will do something to address both dimensions of their plight. Gideon, however, is an unlikely rescuer. If you remember the story, verse 11 of chapter 6, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now the Abiezrites are a nothing kind of clan. They are, as Gideon says down in verse 15, the weakest clan in the tribe of Manasseh. And the tribe of Manasseh is one of the weakest of the 12 tribes of Israel, completely overshadowed by the tribe of Ephraim. And Gideon is the least in his family. The angel appears to him as he's hiding away in a wine press, trying to thresh a little wheat in secret. And the angel says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's not what you expect, is it? Gideon is no mighty warrior. He's weak, a weak and frightened man. And he argues with the angel. And the angel says to him, verse 14, go in the strength that you have. Literally, go in this your strength and save Israel out of Midian's hand. The angel isn't saying that he's spotted hidden potential in Gideon. What he's saying is go in this strength that I am giving to you. This strength with which I am now closing you, clothing you. Go now in this strength. The Lord is with you. And so Gideon, the weakest link, the weakest man in the weakest family, in the weakest clan of the weakest tribe of Israel is commissioned by God to be Israel's saviour. And his timidity doesn't go away overnight. Three times in this chapter, Judges chapter 6, three times he asks God for a sign to prove to him beyond doubt that it really is God speaking to him and that God really means what he says and will do what he, say, what he says he will do. And God is very patient with him and each time he gives him the signs that he's asking for. And Gideon is eventually persuaded. God gives him the faith that he needs to trust. And God gives him the signs upon which that faith will rest. And Gideon believes God and thus strengthened by God and given the faith that he needs, he believes and obeys and as the book of Hebrews says, by faith, his weakness was turned to strength. So far, eventually, so good. God gives him, as I said, two tasks. The first is to tackle the idolatry of Israel. Verse 25, it is to tear down his father's own altar to Baal and the Asherah pole beside it. As I said, he's not from a great family. 
and to build in its place a proper altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, and to offer up on it a bull as a sacrifice. It is, as it were, in his own backyard to embody a direct challenge to the idol worship of the Israelites. Start in his own backyard and to act out a turning from the worship of Baal to the worship of the Lord. Uh, He is, as we've already started to realise by now, not the most naturally courageous of guys. So he does it, but he does it in the middle of the night. Just kind of hoping that no one will notice who did it. Has someone turned up during the night and kind of tore this down and built another thing and look at that. (laughs) He does it. He does it by night. And when the men of the town come to kill him for it, his father has to stand up for him. But in the mercy of God, his father kind of catches a bit of contagious secondhand courage when the moment comes. And his father says, if Baal is really a god, he can defend himself. Let him fight his own battles. And Baal doesn't show up to fight. And Gideon comes to be known as Jerob Baal. Let Baal contend. It becomes Gideon's nickname. He becomes despite himself. Despite his almost comical weakness. He becomes by his new name that he's given. An embodiment, a kind of poster boy of the challenge to the idol worship of Israel. That's the first task that he's given. And through the various twists and turns, eventually, you have to say, it's a glorious success. The second task is to tackle the consequences of Israel's idol worship, the oppression that they are suffering at the hands of the Midianites. It's the commission that God gave him originally back in chapter 6, verse 14. And the fulfilment of that second part of his mission takes us into chapter 7, the second scene in the story of of Gideon. This is the story most of us who know anything, those of us who know anything about the story of Gideon, this is the bit that we're familiar with, right? It's the the, the one that we we teach in Sunday school. The chapter begins with a strange little scene where God retrenches 99% of Gideon's army. Massive downsizing exercise. We've already been told in chapter 6 that the armies of the Midianites are too numerous to be counted. God looks at the little force of 32,000 men that Gideon has in his rather pathetic little army, and he says to Gideon, you have too many men. Your army is too big. Which seems kind of illogical, doesn't it? But God continues, verse 2, in order that Israel may not boast against me, that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men, presumably all trembling with fear, go home. And 10,000 remain. God's not content with that. Though he carries out another cull, verses 4 to 8, this time there are only 300 men left. Out of that original, very small, completely outnumbered, army of 32,000. It's down to 300 now. And the Lord says to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped the water with their hands, if you remember, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. But before the battle, 
verses 9 to 14, before the battle, God speaks again to Gideon because he is still very afraid. Understandably, I suppose, given the numbers. And he takes him down, the Lord takes him down to the camp of the Midianites and lets him overhear one Midianite soldier talking to another one, recounting the dream that he had had. And the effect of this overheard conversation is to fill Gideon with confidence that the Lord has given the Midianite camp into the hands of Israel. Once again, do you see, it is God who is the one who strengthens the hand and strengthens the heart of Gideon. So he goes back and he gathers together his little army. Well, army is the wrong word, isn't it? His little company of soldiers. And they descend on the Midianite camp from three directions at once in the middle of the night with torches and trumpets and a kind of war cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Lord, verse 22, the Lord causes the Midianites to turn on each other in panic and the army flees away and the result is a comprehensive victory for Israel. That is the last time the narrator mentions the Lord in these chapters. After this, there are several points where Gideon mentions God, but God stops speaking. And the narrator stops saying, God did this, or the Lord did that. And we move into the third chapter of the Gideon story, which is the most disturbing chapter, and the one that I want us to focus on for the remainder of our time this morning. It begins quite well. By now, Gideon has become an enormously capable leader. You almost forget the Gideon of Judges chapter 6. In fact, I suspect Gideon forgets the Gideon of Judges chapter 6. In verses 1 to 3, he is an astute diplomat. As he handles the complaints of the Ephraimites, he, he handles them with beautiful shrewdness. Ephraim was the big brother of Manasseh. The tribe of, Israel, of Ephraim was always bigger and more impressive than the tribe of Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. So Gideon is being a very wise politician in these verses as he diffuses a potentially very dangerous political situation. He knows what he is doing. He gives the Ephraimites their share of glory. And he's not only the astute diplomat. He's also, verses 4 to 21, he's also the ruthless general. He drives his exhausted army of 300 on a pursuit of the Midianite kings, Zabar and Zalmunna. And he captures them and he brings them back alive. It's not enough, do you see, to kill them on the battlefield. He wants to be the one who's seen to kill them, who demonstrates his prowess before witnesses. He parades them before the men of Sukkot and the men of Peniel and he carries out brutal reprisals against both of those towns because they had taunted him and doubted his ability to capture the Midianite kings. And then in verse 18, he turns to Zebar and Zalmunna and he questions them and he says to them, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They try to flatter him in their answer. 
And they say men who looked a lot like you, men with the bearing of a prince. They seem to be completely unaware of the fact that it was Gideon's own brothers that they had killed. And that their very answer confirms that for him. And so he condemns them to death. At first, he commands his son to kill them. But his son's too frightened to do it. He's only a kid, just a boy. He's not yet sufficiently bloodthirsty. So the Midianite kings mock Gideon for his weak little son. And they say to him, oh, come on, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. And he does. He steps forward, he kills them, and he rips the ornaments off their camel's necks. The Gideon of chapter 8 is not the kind of man you'd, be on, you'd want to be on the wrong side of, yeah? He's a far, far cry from the timid, fearful Gideon of Judges chapter 6. He's a strong man, and he carries himself like a strong man. And he defends his dignity brutally. And he's keen to train up his son to follow in his footsteps and to blood him for battle. And the people of Israel see those qualities in him. And they think to themselves, he is the one who saved us from the Midianites. The one who saves should be the one who rules. So they go to him, verse 22, and they say to him, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. And he says, no, 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 no. Verse 23, he gives the theologically correct answer. But he doesn't contest the premise behind the request. Did you notice? He doesn't deny their assumption that he was the one who saved them. He's happy to leave that statement uncontested. And even if he says, don't give me the title of a king, he begins immediately to act like one, in nature if not in name. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when God had said to Israel that a time will come when you have a king and warns them and gives them rules about that, watch out, Moses says... Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses had said, when you appoint a king, he will want to do things like take many wives and gather to himself gold and silver. We find out in the very first verse of the next paragraph, verse 28, that Gideon had many wives. And the passage here in verses 24 to 26 closes with a picture of Gideon, uh, like Aaron in the Exodus story, gathering together gold and silver. He says to the Israelites, verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And so they spread out a garment, and each man throws a ring from the plunder onto it, and the total came to 1,700 shekels plus the ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments and the camel chains that he had already kind of set the pattern of the plundering uh, for. 
and he makes the gold into an ephod, which he places in Ophrah, his town. An ephod is the word that's used normally to describe the special gear worn by a priest, sometimes made out of linen, sometimes made with gold and precious stones. Sometimes the word is also used for an idol. Whatever it was in this case, gear for priestly divination at a shrine or a molten golden idol, either way, whatever it was in this case, the feel of the verse is not good, is it? Something going on here is not great. It sounds way too much like the story of Aaron and the golden calf. Yet back in the book of Exodus. And the consequences of it are terrible. Verse 27, he placed it in Ophrah, his town, presumably to give a kind of religious support to his power base. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And then the story closes with the customary happy ending uh, of the book of Judges. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. But we all know, we all know by now that underneath that tranquil summary, there are still very disturbing questions about the career of Gideon that are left unanswered. And there are seeds that are sown in Gideon's lifetime across those 40 years of peace and prosperity, seeds that are sown in Gideon's lifetime which come up in the next generation and bear a harvest of bitter fruit. Well, three questions. Three questions that Gideon's career leaves us with as we, fi we finish. The first question is, whose strength Gideon's victories were achieved in? The answer should be obvious, shouldn't it? If you've read the three chapters of the story, you know the answer. Chapter 6 told us, the Lord's strength. Gideon has nothing that he did not receive. Gideon was the weakest link in the weakest clan of the weakest tribe of Israel. It was God who made him strong and it was God who handed the Midianites over into his hand. And yet by the end of the story, that reality seems to have become a distant memory for Gideon. If you've ever read Alice in Wonderland, uh, you may remember the, the picture of the Cheshire cat uh, sitting in the branches of the tree. The cat that slowly fades away until there's nothing left but the smile. It's a bit like that with God in this story. As you move from chapter 6 to chapter 7 to chapter 8, God just simply seems to fade out of the consciousness of Israel until all that is left is the sound of his name on Gideon's lips. And you have to wonder if it goes any deeper than that. 
As far as the Israelites are concerned, from everything they can see, it is Gideon who saved them. And Gideon in whom they are invited to place their trust. Gideon the strong man. Gideon the great general. Gideon the man you don't want to mess with. Not Gideon the weak man that God made strong. But Gideon the strong man you want to have as your king. So that you can benefit from the genes that he'll pass down to his son and his grandson after him. And Gideon seems to be okay with that perception. Whose strength? Same thing happens with the agenda that Gideon is pursuing. Somewhere along the line, the agenda stops being rescuing Israel from her enemies and turns into getting revenge on the men who killed his brothers and teaching a lesson to the Israelites who mocked him. Somewhere along the line, it stops being about tearing down the altars of Baal and turns into building his own objects of false worship. You you can't neatly delineate the point at which he slides across from this agenda to that. He never completely lets go of the first one. He never explicitly signs up to the second one. He keeps talking about the Lord all the way through. But you can't escape from the feeling that by the end of chapter 8, the Lord's agenda, the agenda articulated by the prophet and by the angel back in Judges chapter 6, the Lord's agenda has been almost completely forgotten. And Gideon's own agenda has become the more important one, the controlling, driving force behind his decisions and his actions and his tactics. Whose strength, whose agenda, thirdly, whose kingdom? Because in the same way, by the end of chapter 8, you could be forgiven for asking whose kingdom the nation of Israel really is, In theory, as Gideon is still saying, it is the Lord's kingdom. In practice, however, by the end of the story, everything that Gideon does is communicating the impression that it is Gideon's kingdom. Gideon is spoken of in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith who trusted in the promise of God, who was part of the work of God to deliver his people. He was deeply involved in the work of the kingdom of God. But there was also a part of him that was interested in building his own kingdom. And as you learn, if you keep on reading in the book of Judges, in the very next chapter, the nation of Israel pay a heavy price for that. If the condition of the people of Israel in the days of the Judges was that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes, then the story of Gideon is an early warning that kingship in and of itself, kingship in and of itself is no answer to the problems of the people of Israel. What the people of Israel need is the kingship of the Lord and the Lord's king. That is what they need. 
the fact that Gideon was a man of faith and that he was an ordinary Israelite whom God chose and used, not some Egyptian pharaoh or Midianite general, the fact that this was an ordinary Israelite and a man of faith who took the name of the Lord upon his lips underlines the nature of this story as a warning that you and I as Christian readers of the book of Judges need to hear. The danger that Gideon succumbed to is a danger for us as well. Especially for those of us who are involved in leading and teaching and so on within God's church, within God's people. There's a danger that we can stop trusting in the strength of God and start telling ourselves at some subliminal level that it's our own strength that counts. There's a danger we can let our own private and factional and sectarian agendas creep up alongside God's agenda and even in the end eclipse it. There's a danger that we can stop seeking first the kingdom of God and begin to focus on our own little kingdom, whether it be our family, our youth group, our ministry, our church, our party, our faction. There's a danger that it can all happen so gradually and so subtly that we don't even notice it happening. I don't know in the end, and I don't think the narrator lets me know how self-consciously aware Gideon was of the change that takes place across the arc of his story. I fear that Gideon may have been almost completely self-deceived, unaware of what had happened to him and what was going to happen in the next generation, in the days of his sons. I fear that Gideon may not even have noticed the shift in his thinking, the change in his heart. I fear that because I fear the same thing for myself. We need a mirror like this, do we not? To hold up in front of our own faces and to cause us to examine our own hearts. So the story of Gideon is a warning for us. It says to us, watch out for the telltale signs that this might be taking place for us. You know the signs. You see them in others. The signs you need to watch out for in yourself. You find that you're praying less and less because you're less conscious that you need God's help. Your focus is on your strategies, your vision, your plans your resources. And prayer is just a waste of time, isn't it, really? You're not getting anything done when you're praying. You start thinking about other people doing ministry, not as partners, but as rivals. You want to make sure that you do better than they do and that you're seen to do better and people know about your accomplishments. You get really bothered by criticisms and adverse comments. And you take them quite personally. You bristle at the thought 
that someone might be better than you at the thing you feel quite accomplished at. And you push back defensively against those who make them. And the story of Gideon reminds us that the kingdom that counts is God's kingdom, not ours. That the strength to do anything that really matters is from him and not from ourselves. That nothing we have, we have from ourselves. Anything we possess, we have as a gift from God. Not as something to boast in. And that God's agenda, the agenda of his son, the Lord Jesus, the agenda of his gospel, is the thing that matters far more than any of our own little personal or tribal or factional agendas. Because that is where the power of salvation is. And that is where the name of Jesus is glorified. The mission of God in his world is accomplished over and over again in the pages of the Bible and the history of the church. The mission of God in his world is accomplished by small and imperfect people, by weak people that God makes strong. It doesn't require our greatness. It doesn't need us to build our kingdoms. And when we start to think about the work that we do for God in our family, in our business, in our church, in our ministry, as some kind of monument that we are establishing, an empire that we build, then even our ministry work, even our ministry work can become a snare and a distraction from the work of God and the path of faithfulness. And when that happens, we need God's humbling work to interrupt us with his hand and with his word and to bring us low again so that we might walk humbly before him. So let's pray together. Let's pray that God would be gracious from us, that he would keep us from these dangerous paths, that he would keep us low before him in gratitude and humility that he give us the kind of grace that keeps us where we need to be, finding his strength in our weakness and boasting not in ourselves but in him. Our Father, you are a wonderful God. We give you thanks and praise that you are the God who brings down the proud and who lifts up the humble that you destroy the wisdom of the wise. And you save the foolish things of this world. We thank you that your weakness is more powerful than human strength and your foolishness wiser than human wisdom. And in praising you for these things, Father, we pray that you would teach us to take warning and to, that you would preserve us from the danger of forgetting them. Um, help us, we pray, to dream great dreams for your kingdom. Help us, we pray, to have faith in your great power to do the things that you call us to do. Help us to have a huge confidence in your ability to do even more abundantly than we could all we could ask or imagine. 
and preserve us from the temptation to make ourselves great in the process. Humble us, we pray. Protect us, we pray, from these dangers. Forgive us as we repent when we see them arising within our hearts. And keep us on that path in which you've called us to follow the Lord Jesus, walking humbly with you, our great God, in whose name we pray. Amen.